0: Hello, this is Andy Colasar, partner in Thompson-Hines Environmental Practice Group, welcoming you to our LAWS podcast. LAWS stands for Land, Air, Water, and Safety. And today we will be focusing on the land and water aspects of environmental law with our guest, John Simon, who's a principal at Norris Advisors, LLC, working in Washington, D.C. John is an environmental consultant with over three decades of experience in assessing and remediating hazardous substances and petroleum. John's areas of expertise include remediation, fate and transport, timing of releases, environmental insurance and liability risk transfer, as well as due diligence and environmental management. John is well known in the remediation field He's been on the editorial advisory board of the Remediation Journal since 1991, and the journal's editor-in-chief since 1999. John and I have worked together for many years on remediation projects across the country, and I have relied on John's expertise and advice on numerous remediation and environmental litigation topics over the years. John, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, Andy, thank you for having me.
0: John will share with us today some insights he has regarding per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, otherwise known as PFAS or the forever chemicals because of their persistence in the environment. John's deeply involved in PFAS regulatory and remediation developments. Among other things, John founded and led the PFAS Expert Symposium, which was attended by over 60 PFAS experts in 2019 and 2021. And he's a frequent speaker on PFAS and other emerging contaminant issues. We trust that our listeners are at least somewhat familiar with PFAS. So we're going to focus today on the some of the hot topics of key interest to the regulated community, uh, including EPA's proposal to list PFAS as a hazardous substance, interim and final health advisories, due diligence considerations and remediation considerations. John, before we hit those topics, and, and, you know, I said we're not going to go into uh, all the background about PFAS, but, but what's the big deal anyway?
1: Um, the big deal is the toxicity related to PFAS and the U.S. EPA and state's stringent regulatory uh, approaches and very stringent cleanup levels, orders of magnitude below what we typically see with other common contaminants, like chlorinated solvents, um, which makes it quite difficult to clean up in the environment. Now, in addition, PFASs, these forever chemicals, have been getting really frequent notice in the media, Um, and most people actually know what forever chemicals are. Uh, I was in a social event not too long ago, and it actually was the topic of the event. Um, it was quite interesting. So people are concerned, namely because um, they recognize that PFAS are ubiquitous and are present throughout the environment and are, are really, unfortunately, in everybody's blood, which makes people um, hypersensitive to the potential health effects of PFAS. Sure. Um,
0: and, and therefore the governments, um, the federal government and the state governments are responding accordingly um, because of this interest. Um, John, the the first topic that we wanted to um, hit today is the um, proposed listing of a couple of the PFAS compounds as hazardous substances. Um, On September 6th of this year, EPA released a proposed rule to designate two of the compounds as hazardous substances. As expected, um, they've received a lot of comments. Um, I know we were anticipating that the final rule would uh, come out maybe in the summer of 2023. Um, I understand now that um, some industry groups are going to be challenging that rule, and uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. in my view, it's just a matter of time before EPA finalizes the rule or Congress does it for them. Um so so let's talk about what what this is gonna mean in the context of Superfund, for example.
1: Okay. So it, it affects Superfund in a couple different ways. One, when there's releases of the two PFAS, one of the two PFAS above a reportable quantity, it would need to be reported to the National Response Center. Um the two compounds are I'll just use the abbreviation PFOA and PFOS. Um and in addition, um uh, the EPA could list sites based on the presence of PFAS um and when I say PFAS in the context of Superfund, I'm referring to PFO and PFOS. Uh and in addition, this hazardous substance designation could complicate existing CERCLA or Superfund removal actions or remedial actions, site cleanups, because you know they've been testing for the primary contaminants of concern, and now PFAS is going to be added. If they're suspected, if it's detected, it could trigger a whole different regulatory approach to the cleanups. Um, and what we are seeing is EPA is currently requiring. PFAS testing, particularly in groundwater, as part of the five-year reviews. And so PFAS is detected. I'm familiar with the landfill. Five-year review came around. They detected PFAS. It was, it, it was far-reaching and it wasn't being treated by the existing pump and treat system. So the, the regulatory agency required the responsible parties very quickly to put on additional treatment. And it was even affecting homes in the area so very interesting i mean a very profound impact due to one little requirement to do five year the testing is part of the five-year reviews
0: and Um, that situation that you're talking about even has happened before the identification of those two compounds as hazardous substances
1: that that, that's right that's right the epa has the authority to require testing and um, it was deemed an imminent and substantial dangerment. And so they use that requirement under superfund to trigger the additional work. Um, and then one other thing that I, I is complicated but could be far reaching is there's a, a number of superfund sites with ongoing allocation proceedings, meaning that um the parties are trying to determine what the equitable and fair shares for each party are based on their contribution to the cleanup. And a detection of PFAS could turn that allocation proceeding on its head, because let's assume that you have a site that's driven by trichloroethylene or TCE, Um, and, and then all of a sudden PFAS is detected. It could change the cleanup approach require more expense, and all of a sudden, a chlorinated solvent party might have a smaller share than a PFAS party, whereas before PFAS were being tested, the the shares were being divided in, in a different way based on the cost causation of each responsible party's input of contaminants into the site. So we're adding a new contaminant with very stringent cleanup levels, potentially, depending on what state we're in. Um, that could really change these allocation proceedings. Um, is there?
0: I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, is there um, in those types of sites where you may have PFOS as well as you know other um, you know more typical contaminants of concern? Um, is there? Um, will there be an overlap between the remediation? of the pfas versus the the other contaminants or um, is it sort of a separate remediation technologies um it, it it's site
1: specific but in general terms there will be some overlap um uh assuming that you know it's not metals and pfas because then there might not be overlap but if it's an organic compound like trichloroethylene that you know, migrates at about the same rate as many PFAS compounds. Um, there might be some overlap, but it will change. In some way, how the remedy is performed because, for example, if you're using activated carbon. PFAS is going to break through and use more carbon. Than TCE um, and you can, or. TCE could be degraded in situ, whereas PFAS at least right now based on existing technologies can't be remediated in situ.
0: Are there other regulatory programs that may be affected by the listing as hazardous substances? Um,
1: it will, well, one, the RECRA cleanup program is actually looking at listing PFAS as a, as a appendix eight or nine constituent which will lead to its listing as a hazardous waste. Um, The toxic release inventory has requirements, which is under, you know, falls under CERCLA. So it will affect other regulatory programs in addition to just cleanups.
0: Maybe DOT regulation as well as a hazardous material.
1: Yeah, it could be um, absolutely the transportation
0: Okay, well, um, I I wanted to move on to our second topic, um, which is the interim and final health advisories. Um, I will note that EPA recently lowered the drinking water health advisory levels for PFOA and PFOS to some ungodly low concentrations. Um, So John, first, what are health advisories? Um, how do they differ from MCLs and MCLGs? And and, and what's the impact of um, this lowered health advisory for these two PFOS compounds?
1: Okay. Well, health advisories are um, levels established by the EPA to protect all people, including sensitive populations, Um, in various ages from adverse health effects resulting from exposure to chemicals and now including PFAS. Um, And so they're calculated to offer a margin of protection. Uh, And it's interesting, um, the two, the PFOA and the PFOS health advisories are based on the suppression Of vaccination to five to seven year olds. It's a study that was done in the Faroe Islands, um, due to exposure to PFO and PFOS. So, in other words, it's not that the vaccines won't work; it's that the the body's immune response to the vaccine is suppressed by the exposure to PFO and PFOS, and that's basically. On studies, there's an association between the exposure and the supposed suppression um, at very low concentrations. So we ended up with these extremely low health advisories of four, well, point four parts per quadrillion for PFOA and twenty parts per quadrillion for PFOS. So it, it well below the detection limits for any or uh, any really, um, even the most sensitive analytical methods.
0: And then what happens next um, with these health health advisories?
1: Um, so the health advisories. There's a couple things that could happen. One, the first time the EPA set health advisories, it was at 70 parts per trillion, um, as opposed to parts per quadrillion. So much, much more, a thousand times higher. Uh, and a number of states latched onto those and use those as. Drinking water or groundwater cleanup guidance. Um, so some states may use the health advisories in establishing guidance. I don't think it would be at the, these extremely low levels that we're seeing, but it could drive the levels down. Um, another thing is that they're typically used in the. MCL the maximum contaminant level setting process and the MCL contaminant level goals and often health advisories become the MCLGs the goals um but not necessarily the MCLs which will have some level of um economics or at least detection limits incorporated within them at least that's what i've heard
0: and those of us who have been following these developments, um, as you alluded to, know that um, states have been um, issuing either drinking water standards or um, groundwater cleanup standards um, that get lower and lower. Um, and, and that must be creating some real um, concern. For companies that are being required to remediate these substances,
1: uh, yes, because you get to a point where it's, you know it's technically impracticable to to reach some of the levels, and um I was at a conference last week, and I heard that you know it's EPA, which is supposed to be setting proposed um, drinking water standards for PFO and PFOS before the end of the year. That the level could be four parts per trillion, which is EPA's accepted detection limit for these two compounds.
0: And and then would you expect um, US EPA to do- adopt that as uh, obviously as a groundwater standard if if anyone's drinking the the groundwater?
1: Yeah, it'll it'll become um, an ARAR or the basis of uh, remediation goals at Superfund sites, more likely than not. And, you know, it, it could be four parts per billion, trillion at some Superfund sites. And as well, it, you know, states with stringent levels could go even lower.
0: So you and I both, um, have, have played a role in due diligence over the years for, for our clients. Uh, sometimes working together, and um, this is obviously starting to get the attention of all of us who assist companies with due diligence in corporate and real estate transactions. Um, we, We have generally relied on agency no further action approvals, and you know other certificates of completion and and such things uh, to provide comfort that a historical issue or recognized environmental condition has been adequately addressed. What do you think about that reliance in the context of these PFAS developments?
1: Um, I think it will be important to look at the underlying basis of those no further action determinations and the historical operations of facilities to assess whether pfas could be present because even with a no further action the presence of pfas could still pose a liability to the property
0: what types of facilities uh, might you expect to have pfas concerns
1: um I mean, the 2 obvious ones are facilities that either manufactured PFAS or use PFAS in the process. And then as well, um, fire training or fire response sites that. Used aqueous film forming foams or a triple F. Um, in the process, so a fire training area that repeatedly. Had foam sprayed on it is, you know, quite likely to have. A PFAS issue then, in addition, there's various industrial sites um, that may have used PFAS as is, is either an ingredient or it was even unknowingly present in a, a product. Um, and then landfills, which are rarely part of due diligence, but they're important to look at, you know, if somebody's buying a landfill, of course, but the process need to do a landfill site as well as wastewater treatment plants. And in particular, with respect to wastewater treatment is the application of biosolids which can accumulate PFAS and then biosolids are often used as fertilizers on agricultural properties and i've actually experienced a couple of different times um the presence of PFAS contamination due to the spreading of biosolids and i mean we're talking about spreading across three counties and 50 different farms
0: You know, when we were talking about um, the potential listing of PFOS compounds as hazardous substances, we did not mention um, what impact that will have on ASTM phase one environmental site assessments. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about ASTM uh, 21 and, um, you know, what and how ASTM is dealing with um, PFAS at this point
1: um so my understanding is that the ASTM E1527 standard that was released in 2021 um treats PFAS as a out of scope work item but it's still a critical element um because if an environmental professional overlooks PFAS it could create liability for their company and their and obviously their client as well uh, so, and I wouldn't be surprised if ASTM um, incorporates PFAS into the ASTM standard, uh, not in the near future because of the process is a long process to to get through uh, because it's a consensus-based undertaking, um, but it might not wait five years like they typically do to issue a new, a, a new ASTM real estate-based standard. Um, or basically an upper, uh, updated version of e fifteen twenty seven the phase one standard
0: now if um pfos becomes a hazardous substance then that will automatically be covered under a s t m correct
1: uh, absolutely correct andy that's an excellent point
0: so what i mean what what's your advice to um companies um and, and, and lawyers who you're working with um, about evaluating the PFAS risks um, in the context of due diligence?
1: Um, when retaining an environmental consultant, I would, uh, I would suggest or recommend inco- including PFAS as part of the scope of work. So a review of PFAS and um, PFAS substances and sources uh, as well as I'd, I'd make sure the environmental professional who's doing the work um, is cognizant of PFAS and more so than just the general public, but there's a lot of consultants that don't understand the complexities of the PFAS because frankly, it's not something you learn in, in a couple of days, it, it, it's very complex.
0: Just, Just as an aside and not to get sidetracked here, but are there other chemicals on your radar screen, um, you know, that, that aren't typically that people aren't necessarily focusing on in due diligence then? And maybe they should be.
1: Um, well, there's a whole subfield within the remediation business of emerging contaminants. And, you know, one is one, two, three, trichloropropane. It, it, it It's relatively toxic and, you know, not often considered. but it's just an, it's a good example of another emerging contaminant that could cause an issue with respect to due diligence.
0: Where might one find that chemical?
1: Um, I've seen it at uh, uh, chemical manufacturing facilities, for example. It's not as prevalent as PFAS, and you know there are no other chemicals that are pre- as prevalent as PFAS with as low of um, these. Well, the state cleanup standards or the EPA's health advisories, or even the former health advisories. You know, part per trillion levels are are rarely used, except for extremely toxic compounds like dioxins.
0: Sticking with the due diligence and, um, transactional. Topic, what are you seeing? Um. Or, or how how are insurance companies and lenders reacting to these developments, which obviously affect risk?
1: Um, insurance companies are very quick to include PFAS in their list of excluded excluded pollutants. Um, although, in if there's no reason to exclude PFAS, I have seen policies that uh, included or didn't exclude PFAS, uh, and then with respect to uh, uh, lending, uh, again, the, the lenders are typically use internal or external consultants to review phase ones, and what I've seen is them asking questions about PFAS. Whereas, as, as short as two years ago, I um, was not seeing those types of questions being asked
0: yeah And there's no question that we're going to see more of that um you know as this becomes uh, more and more uh, on the radar screen if if that's even possible john i wanted to um to to move on um and and talk about um pfos in 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 the context of site cleanups um <laughs> it's an unfair question, but um, I assume there's a lot of PFAS sites that are going to be discovered out there.
1: There are, and what we're seeing is, um, you know, some some states have requirements for broad testing. New York required PFAS testing at every site except leaking petroleum underground storage tank sites. Um, and they're getting detections. Um, Now, what they're gonna do with all this data is gonna be very interesting. Uh, But if you go to the Environmental Working Group map, you can see that the states with the most, um, Environmental Working Group, excuse me, um, work with with Northeastern University to develop a map of all sites with PFAS detections. And if you were to go, you could Google Environmental Working Group PFAS map, you'll get to that site. If you go to that site and you look at what states have the most detections it's michigan it's new york it's the northeastern states um, particularly rhode island where a lot of pfas testing has taken place so what we're seeing is states are beginning to require more pfas testing and they're having more detections uh, so it's going to have a profound effect uh, uh grant ferrier who runs the environmental business journal has done an estimation on the number of PFAS sites, tens of thousands and the cost to clean up the sites. And he's, his current most recent estimate, I I was with him last week was about in the neighborhood of 85 billion with a B dollars to the, and that's in the U.S. only.
0: I, I mentioned at the outset of this program that um, we we know that some industry groups are contesting the hazardous substance proposed listing. And and one of the um, bases for challenging that rulemaking is um, an assertion that US EPA did not take into consideration the cost of the rule. Um, And so that's a question that's probably going to be addressed by the courts, um, and and exactly you know sort of germane to to the comment that that you just made about the cost. Um, you know we we have seen um, some of our clients uh, be very frustrated because um, they've started remediation projects at former manufacturing properties in the 80s or early 90s and have got to the point where the site is essentially remediated, other than perhaps monitoring um, and, and, and maybe some engineering controls and things like that. And then all of a sudden, uh, the agencies have asked for um, assessments of P- potential PFOS risks. And if, you know, if there's any concerns, um, testing. And um, you know that is a bitter pill to to swallow after thirty years or so of of remediation.
1: Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. It's, a, <laughs> it's a, and it 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 illustrates the profound impact that PFAS could have to the regulated community.
0: We. Um... I, I know we could have a whole separate uh, podcast on remediation technologies um, as they are developed uh, to try to um, address PFAS contamination. And you know with the 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 number of sites um, that you just mentioned and the cost, um there's going to be a lot of people focusing on developing new technologies can you give us a um a little bit of an overview of where things stand you know how how is PFOS being remediated now and and what's kind of in the um um maybe near future to to oh. look forward to
1: um so with with I'll I'll cover soil and groundwater. Um, with respect to soil, we're still seeing excavation offsite disposal, although a number of landfills are not taking soils with high levels of PFAS. Um, there's a landfill, I believe, in a U.S. Ecology landfill in Utah that that readily accepts it because of the depth. The groundwater so so deep. Uh, the there's also stabilization techniques being developed, um, but with respect to soil. Uh, the only other treatment that I've that I've been aware of is thermally heating the soil, and then PFAS will, which is generally non-volatile at ambient temperatures, um, can volatilize and be captured. So um, that's we had an article in the journal about that. With respect to groundwater, uh, there's basically three or four accepted technologies. The, the two are most common are related to pump and treat where the treatment is either granular activated carbon or ion exchange resins. And um, with activated carbon generally being the more cost-effective method. But as the PFAS levels drop, um, the ion exchange may become more prevalent in use because the economics will will flip. Uh, The ion exchange are more expensive, but they're better at capturing low levels of PFAS than activated carbon, which will see breakthrough. Uh, so we might see a change in that um, more frequent use of carbon to more frequent use of ion exchange resin. Then there's also injectable carbon. There's um, two vendors that offer that technology. And then there's some innovative technologies with high energy to break the PFAS you know, carbon fluorine bond or uh capturing pfas actually which weirdly adsorbs onto bubbles and um capturing pfas by bubbling water through bubbling air through water and the pfas adhering to the outside of the air bubbles so there's a couple of interesting things going on but and a lot of work being done by the department of defense uh under their research their research arm
0: They obviously have a big stake in in that outcome. Yes. John, um, we know that the Biden administration has a huge focus on environmental justice and ensuring that environmental rules and policies, uh, permit decisions and enforcement take into account the impact on disadvantaged communities. What's the interplay um, that you're seeing, if any, between environmental justice and PFAS? It, It seems like it could be a bit of a triple whammy where new sites are being discovered or reopened at the same time as these new regulatory developments and now this heightened focus on protecting communities where um at least some of these sites may be located you know it
1: it goes back to the superfund discussion um it, it's well known there's more superfund sites in disadvantaged communities than in wealthy or rural communities so that could drive an inju- environmental justice angle um on the other hand a lot of pfas sites you know, buyer training isn't necessarily, a, oh, you know, sometimes it's urban, but a lot of times it, you know, they want to do that kind of work and training away from urban areas. So we're seeing some PFAS in, in rural areas where environmental justice is not as big of concern. Not that there's not environmental justice issues in rural communities. Don't get me wrong. But um, I will say in the urban areas where there's. Historical manufacturing, I think there could be a focus by. The regulatory agencies um, on tackling the urban sites first for PFAS due to environmental justice issues in the Biden administration's EJ policies. So that, I think it's a good, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic, Andy.
0: All right, John. Well, I want to thank you very much for your participation today it's a topic that's not going away anytime soon and we all need to stay abreast of these developments um, which are really happening at a a rapid pace Um, i'd like to give you an opportunity to have the last word is there anything you would like to leave us with as kind of your final words of wisdom um yes it doesn't have to be totally final we can, we'd love to have you back, but uh, for this for this session, at least.
1: Well, thank you for for the offer to potentially come back. Um, I'd say as a final word is, is stay aware of developments. Um, the the group that you mentioned, the PFAS experts group that that I organized, we're actually picking that back up. We're continuing to we realize that educating the technical portion of the remediation community is is important because the developments are 1, very complex. The toxins is complex. The fate and transport is complex and the remediation developments um, are very important. And so we're going to. Be having additional meetings, webinars and writing more papers. um, uh, To help educate the remediation community.
0: Okay, well, thank you. This concludes this episode of Thompson Hines Laws podcast. We look forward to continuing to provide um, our listeners with current and practical insight into EH and S laws and developments in the future. Uh, the, The podcast episodes are available at iTunes, Spotify, Google and SoundCloud. We'll have additional new episodes in 2023. So please be on the lookout. If you have a request regarding a topic you'd like to hear uh, address in a future episode, please send me an email or uh, contact your usual uh, contact at Thompson Hines Environmental Group, and, and we'll try to address it. If you'd like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Group, please visit ThompsonHines.com. Finally, this podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thanks for listening today. Be well, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.